lesson from it, the probably the legacy that we most think of when we think of David. And that is that he is commended as being a man after God's own heart. Remember that scripture, and then Pastor Jeremy went into showing that you know, one, one way that was true uh, was just his zeal and enthusiasm in worship, how he would even dance into the town as they would come in praising God. And um, I want to follow on and go with that same legacy today and uh, expound a little bit more on what it would mean for David to be that man, because we often see both sides of him, as has been explained in, in uh, sermons in the past, where we think of a man after God's own heart, and yet we see David falling and slipping and sinning, and there's this dichotomy of people, as it were, with David here and David over on that side. But one of the things that struck me as I was preparing for explaining and expounding this life of David was that David was a man of compassion. And that may seem strange because we think of David as a warrior. We think of David as his enemies would call him a bloody man. And yet, we see also in the scriptures that David has another side, a man of great feeling and compassion for people. Remember the anthem that we've heard already with that Israel was beginning to sing when even Saul was king. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And you think, a man of compassion? And yet, yes, he was. In his personal, private life, away from warrior king, David was a man of compassion. And I'll share some examples with you, and hopefully we can emulate that in our personal lives, that even though we are all like David, aren't we? We have virtue, and we have vice. We are righteous, and sometimes unrighteous. Sometimes we sin, and yet we are all striving, I hope, to be people after God's own heart. And David was surely that. And so let's have a look at some examples because I believe that this virtue of compassion that David developed went all the way back to his childhood, long ago, before even we're introduced to, to who David was. And if you think about the, the beginning of the life of David, and when we find him, ourselves, sitting out there on a hillside, tending to sheep, there's still a backstory to that. Because before anybody could ever be responsible for an entire flock of sheep or cattle or anything, obviously you'd need some apprenticing, wouldn't you, to do that. And so probably from the time he was a little boy, he would go out with his brothers or his dad or his mother perhaps and apprentice tending to sheep. And so now after many years of development, he's out here by himself as we're introduced to him. But when you do that, when you are responsible for livestock, you begin to have a feeling for those animals. How many of you currently... Uh, take care of what I'll call livestock, uh, sheep, cattle, horses. Anybody currently have a care for that? Now, how many of you at some time in your past took care of livestock? Aha, look at all the hands. We have had a, a lot of ex-farmers here, don't we? <laughs> People who have done that before. How many of you have a pet at home? Dog, cat, reptile, or whatever. Okay, a lot of pets. 
Well, you know, pets, we, we get pets because they're warm and fuzzy and they're cuddly and they're cute and they're entertaining. But, you know, somewhere along their life, they often need a lot of intervention, don't they? I mean, we have to feed them every day for one thing, but sometimes they get sick. Sometimes their lifestyle, their quality of life is over and we have to put them to sleep. And even that is compassion. So I think David, in his early years, from the time he was a little boy, began to feel for these sheep. Or maybe they had other animals as well. And he began to see that it was up to him to protect them. And we already heard about some of the incidents in David's life where he would certainly you know, have an occasion to, uh, uh, to show his compassion for them. Um, notice in Psalm 80, we'll have this up on the board here, one of the uh, things that Pastor Jeremy just read, notice as he prayed what he said. You, O Lord, are compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This was his feeling for who God was, and he said, God, make me after your heart. Compassionate. And I believe his life reflected that as well, as well as all the other virtues that are mentioned there. Now, David with these sheep, this flock of helpless sheep, really, I mean, they could graze and eat on their own, but he had to find them pasture, he had to find them water, and he even had to protect them. And I think you know from the uh, story, if you've read some of them and and been listening to all the the sermons, that on uh, at least a couple occasions... He actually gave his life for his sheep, except he was the victor. Now, if you want to get some idea of what he faced, that's one of the critters (laughs) that showed up one day and wanted a sheep. This is called the Syrian brown bear. And even though they don't exist in Israel today, they've been exterminated from that land, they're still around the Middle East. They're here and there in the mountains. But probably that is what... He faced, as well, as you know, a lion. And somehow, before rifles and bear spray, he did that thing in. He killed it. How did he do that? I, I've always wondered. If, if any of us faced that, we'd probably be the losers. But David won, killed the bear, killed the lion, and, as it were, gave his life for that flock of sheep. He could have well been killed himself or or severely mauled, but he stood up for his sheep. You talk about compassion for animals. And there there was what he faced on occasion. Now, we don't know how many of these occasions there were. We were told about two. But by the time David was a teenager, he had a local legacy of being pretty brave, right? If you could... You know, boast about a bear, boast about a lion. Uh, he had a reputation of being a really good shepherd. And the people of the town um, began to know him as somebody that was fearsome, but also very compassionate, that other side of David, that feeling that he had for, in the first place, animals, which later translated to people. You know, they're very similar. And that's why I think it's a, a wonderful learning experience if, Families can have, if not livestock, pets where children can learn how to take care and feel for the needs of these helpless creatures. They, they are basically totally dependent on us. 
And David did as well. So when he grew up and we became, you know, an older child, then a teenager, and then into his later years, he had this feeling for people. And this example, I think, translates very quickly into the next one. As I say, I'll kind of shotgun a little bit into David's life. David, when he was probably still a teenager, uh, although he was out shepherding the sheep, he had a lot of time on his hands. And you can imagine, if you're just sitting there on a hillside, on a normal day when there's no bears or no lions, uh, what do you do? Well, you sit and watch your sheep graze. Uh, my grandfather was a shepherd. And um, he came over, didn't like shepherding, he didn't like farming at all. So he came over to America in 1906, and he said, um, I think I'll do something else for my life. So he did. He, he went into uh, a factory work and began to do other things. But um, thinking back to his days in Europe, he said, you know, most of the time when you're a shepherd, it's about as exciting as watching grass grow. <laughs> because there you are just watching these animals eat. And if nobody's invading them, then kind of a boring day. But David made use of his time, remember? What do you think he did all those hours sitting out there besides being ready to spring into action if a attacker came? Well, we know two things David did. He was a really good marksman, right? In fact, I wonder if he didn't kill that thing with, with a stone. You never know. But... He practiced with his slingshot, remember, no rifles, you know, no target practice, other than the sling. And we know from what we've heard already that that became incredibly valuable when he met Goliath. And so there he is, hour after hour, you know, swinging these stones, trying to hit the mark. So God used that for him to help him along. So here's a man that, a teenager at this point, who just simply... Uh, wants to be a better marksman with whatever weapon he could have, which in this case was a slingshot. That's all he had, but he used it well. Also, if you think about the other time he had, what else did he learn how to do well that, he, that God used very soon afterwards? Anybody remember? Played a harp, yeah. He, he said, I got this instrument. Remember, we have very simple instruments back then, but he said, if I have all this time, why not learn music? Why not play music? Why not play for my family? He probably did. He probably gave some performances. So David learned how to play the harp, and God looked down at him and said, I can use you. I got this king over here that has a lot of distress. And in the story, we know that God anointed Saul. And if we look at a sequence of events here, we can just quickly remember what happened in the story of Saul and David. He anoints Saul, then God rejects Saul, and Samuel announces this. Then David is anointed, and then an evil spirit of the Lord departs from, or the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and an evil spirit comes in and begins to torment Saul. We have this exchange. So Saul goes from a king with problems, and yet with the spirit of God, to a king with an evil spirit. And then David is recommended. And he goes in and soothes Saul, but when the Spirit of God is gone, as we know, he tries to kill him a number of times. And so finally, David flees away. And probably through his entire 20s, David is running away from the king of Israel. Can you imagine that? 
always looking over his shoulder, outnumbered, and yet he survives probably 10 years at least from teenage to the time he's anointed king or, or takes over kingship at the time of 30. And so David here is looking, uh, you know, hearing about King Saul, and finally somebody recognizing his talents in, in harp music calls him into the court. Now imagine going from being a shepherd, an unknown, sitting up there on a, on a hillside, to going into the court of the king. You talk about a transition from nothingness to a, an exalted position. And again, God blessed him because this harp music was able to help calm Saul. Now that's an interesting connection, isn't it? How music and the spirit world might be connected. It says when he did that, the evil spirits departed. Hmm. That's a whole subject all by itself, that music has a spiritual connection as well as just what we hear in our ears. And so here David was able to do that, but even Saul, appreciating the, you know, the music, still he had this distressful spirit, and we know that he tried to kill him a number of times. And finally, David's gone. He has to run for his life, probably for about 10 years, running from Saul. And again, God helping him because he was always outnumbered. He could have been easily killed, found out, disposed of. But here's where compassion comes in again. David still remembered Saul, and he always said, this is God's anointed. Even though this man was trying to kill him, this is God's anointed. And when he had at least two occasions to kill him, two occasions, and there might have been more, but we're told about two, instead of doing that, he simply embarrassed him. He said, look, I could have killed you. Here's a piece of your garment. Look, I could have killed you. Here are two of your belongings. Remember that story where at night he snuck into Paul's or, or Saul's uh, camp and there was a spear, there was a jug of water, and he took them both away. Now imagine going right there to a sleeping Saul, taking his spear, his jug of water. And then the next morning, you can imagine Saul saying, where's my spear? Where's my jug of water? Come on, who did this? What's, what's the joke here? And nobody's admitting it. The whole camp says, not me. <laughs> I didn't do it. Not me. And then across the valley, David shows up and says, looking for these? Holding up a jug, holding up a spear. And sure enough. And I, I, I mention that story because it gives us some idea of what happens next. Saul, in all of these years of chasing, trying to kill David, and now realizing again that he could have been killed, I think there's a change here. I'll share it with you from the book of Samuel. There's a, an interesting, let's say, conclusion to the story. So David shows Saul the spear, the jug, and finally Saul says, notice, this is in 1 Samuel 26. He says, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you've considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. And then he says, May you be blessed, my son, David. You will do great things and surely triumph. 
And that's probably the last encounter that David had with Saul. Saul goes off to battle. He and his three sons are killed on Mount Gilboa. And the whole picture changes. Isn't that interesting? What's the lesson we learn from that? Compassion can be a path to reconciliation. At least it looks that way between those two. Finally, after ten years, Saul seems to, to get the point that David is a man worth not killing. He's a man of integrity and a man of virtue. And I think compassion was a huge part of that. So we have him going that direction to uh, finally then, of course, himself being, in, being placed in, in kingship once, when, when Saul is gone. Now, if you think about David, we realize that in not only biologically in his descent, but in other ways, he is a type of Jesus who came a thousand years later. And isn't it interesting where this same attitude of compassion for people that David had is expressed in Jesus' words. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? We have that here in the next slide. This is the longer version from the King James Bible, but notice what Jesus said. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Ah, who did that? A thousand years earlier was David. Exactly that to Saul. Instead of cursing him, he blessed him. Instead of killing him, he spared his life. That's the secret. And so, this is a virtue that even David was able to exemplify a thousand years before Jesus codified it and shared it with us on the Sermon on the Mount. One other one, just quickly, as we look at this, and then we'll step back for a moment and say, yeah, but what has that got to do with me? I mean, that was like 3,000 years ago. How about today? One other example of David's compassion was after he's king. Okay, he's spared Saul's life. He's tended for his sheep. And he asks around, he said, is there anybody from the house of Saul that I can do something good for? What? What are you, what are you thinking? The house of Saul is trying to kill you, and you're asking to do good? But there was. He found out there was a, a young man, or a young boy maybe, Uh, who had been crippled, who actually turned out to be the son of his friend Jonathan, who had an uncle by the same name, Mephibosheth. Probably the only two people in history ever with that name. (laughs) Mephibosheth. Try to say that five times fast. Anyway, uh, here's this young boy who has crippled legs, and David not only spares his life, but he brings him into his court to be there to dine at his table and to take advantage of all the royal blessings that are there. Do you imagine that? You talk about compassion for somebody that was in the family of his pursuer. That was David. He had compassion on this poor crippled child that probably had no life at all, but now at least he his life was spared. And so again, this transitions so well into another thousand years later, Jesus' ministry of compassion. If you think of him, every time we read a story about Jesus, he's showing in some way compassion. How many people did he ever heal? We don't know, but 
It would be thousands upon thousands of people. Whole towns of people came to be healed. And it says he healed them all. Everybody. Jesus forgave people who had sinned instead of enacting the law of Moses on them. Think about that. He just said, go, but sin no more. But he forgave them instead of condemning them. Jesus fed people just like that. We're told that one time there were 5,000 people, but it says besides women and children. So if you add that number up, probably 10,000 people that got a free lunch that day. Now, they might have easily made it home for food, but Jesus looked out and said, you know, they're hungry. I'm hungry. They're hungry. And out of spirit, he produced all this food. Imagine that. That's a number. Looking at our own valley, if you took all the people that live from about Gallagher Lake all the way to the U.S. border, imagine everybody getting a free lunch. That's about 10,000 folks. That's a lot of people. You know, a lot of us are in that group. Some of you come from across the mountain, but most of us are here somewhere. And not only you, but everybody else in the fields, in the stores, in the homes, Jesus feeds them a lunch. And he does that on other times, at least one other time we know about. We talk about compassion, feeling that something just as seemingly insignificant as a meal, I'll just give you some food, make you feel better. Jesus' ministry of compassion, an amazing story, all the things that he did. So let's, uh, let's boil it down to the 21st century. What does that mean to us? You know, here we are. We hear these stories. We're inspired. They're there, preserved for us. But what does that mean in our everyday lives? Some of us are fortunate, like David, that as a child, we grew up in families of compassion, families that reached out into their community, families that helped their neighbors, families that just were giving a lot, maybe hospitality. They brought people into their homes. But, you know, a lot of people did not grow up like that. I didn't. My home, we, we would help a neighbor in an emergency. I'm sure most people would. But we were not a family that reached out and just helped people on a regular basis. It was, you know, pretty much just our own lives and keeping to ourselves. And so, not... Um, unexpectedly, I grew up, maybe you did too, with a me, myself, and I attitude. Like, okay, here's what I got to do to get ahead, go to school, get good grades, get a diploma, get a job. And God saw me along that path, and he said, hmm, that guy needs to learn a few things. <laughs> and so instead of heading for my planned academic career, which I really wanted to do, God grew me into pastoral ministry. Can you imagine the difference? He said, no, I want you to be a pastor because you ain't got much compassion. <laughs> you need to feel for people. You need to get into their lives and see what people go through. And, wow, did it ever eye-opener. When, when you are a pastor and you share the lives of your parishioners and you, you really get to know what they go through, it's an amazing experience. I got a long way to go yet, but I'm, I'm heading in that direction. And I, I know that that experience alone was a big factor in that. And, you know, we ourselves, when we look out and say, well, what can I do? How, how can I help? 
Here's, here's something that somebody mentioned in a, a conference once I never forgot. They said, if you don't feel for people, if you don't have much empathy for the, for the other guy, here's what you do. You step back into your little cave, your man cave, your sanctuary, whatever you want to call it, in your private, quiet place, and you just say, what if that person was me? What if I was going through that? And instead of just saying it, try to imagine you are that person going through distress. You are suffering. You are going through financial ruin. You are going through grieving, or whatever the problem may be. And then step forward and say, and what are my resources? How, how can I help that situation? It may be directly, maybe, maybe it's money, but very often it isn't. It's time. It's a referral that somebody else can help better. What can I do? How could I relieve that situation? And so I'm especially thinking today of families with children at home, and of course there's lots of us here that don't have children at home, but let me just address any those of you that have children at home. Make it a family project, if you don't already have one, and you may, to think of what your whole family could do to some other person on your street, in your neighborhood, maybe another family member. What could you do on a regular basis to help them in their life? And, you know, just be very specific and zero it down, but, but directly include your children in this. Because I wasn't as a child. My parents did what they did. We were doing what we do. And there was not this deliberate outreach. But what a benefit it is for people to do that from the time they're very small, to have this feeling of compassion for other people, and to be directly involved in the process. So I know many of you already do lots of things. And God bless you, reaching out to people all over the community. Uh, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But for those that have children especially, that's an amazing learning lesson. And so I hope that we ourselves can have uh, not only the sense of compassion, but, but the practice of it, where we do it and then we model it for other people. I want to just close with um, a quick quote. How many of you ever heard of poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? Anybody ever hear of that guy? Okay. With a name like that, it's hard to forget, right? Anyway, he was an American poet. He wrote one of my favorite Christmas hymns, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. We don't sing that much, but it's filled with compassion and emotion. A man, at the time he wrote it, in the middle of the American Civil War. And he said, you know, isn't it ironic? All of the churches stopped fighting for Christmas Day. And next day, they're killing each other. He wrote this compassionate poem. You should read it if you haven't read it for a while. But notice this little one-liner of wisdom that he left for us, maybe thinking of something like that. And I hope we, we ourselves do as well. He said, if we could only read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man and woman lives of sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Let me read it again. If we could only read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man and woman's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. 
That's the essence of compassion. If we could just do that, and, and we do that, then what a different world it would be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have shared with us and have thought to preserve for us these amazing stories of people thousands of years ago, but, but they might as well live today. It's so up-to-date. We are like those people. And Lord, we too strive to have a heart that you have. Lord, implant that heart in us. Help us to exemplify the virtues of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for being the model to us as you minister to us and do continue to minister. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.